Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today, we'll gain insights into mental wellness. Talking about physical health and well-being is often easier. I'm looking forward to how we can be more comfortable talking about and supporting mental health in our families, work, community, and selves. My guest today is a psychologist and author of five books who founded Change Ways Clinic, one of Vancouver's largest group practices offering psychotherapy. He teaches online courses on psychological topics and has conducted several hundred in-person training programs for clinicians across Canada and internationally. His clinical focus is on depression, anxiety, communication skills, and difficulties in transition from adolescence to independent adulthood. The Canadian Psychological Association recognized him with its annual Distinguished Practitioner Award. As a member of the LGBTQ population, he's also led diversity education programs for decades. I am happy to welcome Randy Patterson. Randy, thanks for joining me on Say It Skillfully. Glad to be here, Molly. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I am as well. You have been in psychology over three decades. COVID has raised even greater awareness of mental struggles for people of all ages. Um, and to serve people the way you do is something that's at your core. So I, I really appreciate you starting out with your own story, who, what shaped you uh, to who you are today. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, which is in some ways a, a lousy place to start out. You know, it really helps to be raised in some crappy town uh, that you want to escape. You know, you, you start out in a town that's actually quite nice and you've almost got no place to go. So that here I am still here. Um, middle-class family. My father was an accountant, um, uh, went to elementary school and high school in the area. And um, uh, really early on, I think my ambitions were three things. Uh, I was thinking about this before we began. What, how, did I, how did I start out? How did I get here? We're <laughs> three, three decades in. I really wanted to be three things. Uh, the first thing was uh, a forest ranger. Uh, I was desperate to be part of a, of a sort of youth forest ranger program that I never got into uh, at about 15. Um, and actually looked into it while I was in high school and, and realized that the Department of Forestry at uh, UBC was mostly about cutting down the forest, <laughs> which was a complete shock to me. Uh, so that, did, that didn't actually work out. Uh, the other things were I wanted to be a psychologist, and um, I'm, I remember that very distinctly. What I don't remember is how I knew what a psychologist was. Um, and then I wanted to be a writer. And so I managed to do two out of three anyway. That's amazing. I have to say my father fought forest fires through school at University of Oregon, having come off the boat from Asia. Uh, so when I hear about the forestry, I actually have a warm spot for that. 
Well, you know, uh, so do I at this point. Uh, my husband and I have a farm in the interior of British Columbia. And some of your listeners may remember that last summer, uh, a town in British Columbia hit Canada's all-time temperature record, uh, outstripping the temperature record for Las Vegas, Nevada. And then the next day, beat that record. And the next day, beat that record. And the next day, burned to the ground, the entire town. That town was very close to our farm, and this that, that fire burned over a couple of weeks over the top of a, a, a plateau right to the edge of our farm, and the firefighters stopped it four feet from our property. It was astonishing. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I can't imagine what that was like. <laughs> it, it was quite something. Uh, we were working the irrigation pumps. And at night, because the irrigation pump failed, of course, uh, when we were trying to, you know, irrigate around the houses and uh, the fire was actually coming down the hill towards us um, as we were doing that. And I was thinking, okay, this is where I have my heart attack. You know, I've kind of been wondering when, when's that going to happen? Apparently now, probably didn't happen. Lived. Wow. I'm pretty stunned. I, I can't imagine being there just being like waiting. I, I mean, I can't. <laughs> well, there was a lot of frantic running around. There wasn't a lot of waiting. But uh, anyway, we lived. So that was fine. Love it. Love it. University. I uh, went to UBC, did my bachelor's in psychology. Uh, and then I thought, well, mm, don't think I'm ready for graduate school and don't think I might have the, the Vita for it. And so I took a year out and um, a, um, the TA for my stats class said, well, you know, I, I'm working in this lab and I think they're looking for somebody else. Would you be interested? And I said, yes. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a clinical psychologist or more in the cognitive field. And this was a cognitive psychologist, but a very prominent one. It made me kind of anxious. It was uh, Anne Treisman, mm -hmm. uh, very, very prominent cognitive psychologist. And then, oh gosh, can I really do that? V one of the nicest people on earth. Uh, that was the best decision I ever made, uh, working with her uh, for a year. Her husband, who shared the lab with her, was Daniel Kahneman, um, Subsequently, the only psychologist ever to win a Nobel Prize for economics, uh, partly because there is no Nobel Prize for psychology. <laughs> um, uh, he also at one point said, I'm not sure whether this is true, but I think at one point he said that he was also the only person ever to win the Nobel Prize for economics who had never taken a course in economics. Uh, but I didn't work for him. I worked for, for Ann Treisman, and that was an absolutely wonderful experience uh, for a year. And what I didn't realize until years later was when I got into graduate school, my graduate supervisor, he only told me this over a beer, years, ages on, uh, the reason that he pulled me out of the application pile was that he saw that uh, I had a letter from Ann Treisman. He said, okay, we're taking him, wow. which was great. Uh, in fact, I hadn't been doing very high-level work at that point. We were doing uh, visual presentations of stimuli, and my job was basically to color them. <laughs> so I spent a year coloring and got a grad school education out of it. 
Nice. Yeah. Really nice. Was, um, were you someone who fit in? I mean, you're, you have a very Zen, you know, disposition. Do you recall feeling like you've been in with everybody? Yeah, I think so. I mean, possibly as a kid, not, although I, you know, I was one of the sort of bookish nerdish uh, kids. We had a certain place that we hung out in, in high school. And then in my undergraduate years, um, I was part of a, I knew where I was going, I guess, in psychology. And so I joined up with the peer counseling service at the student union building, and it was called Speakeasy. I I was out there a couple of years ago. It's still there. Um, And uh, I became uh, one of the training coordinators for that. Um, And so that was a a gang uh, that I had. And then I went off to university in uh, London, Ontario at Western and uh, got involved with the Psychology Graduate Students Association, which sounds very grand, but basically what it meant was we we organized the pub nights and parties, which was exactly the right thing to do. And um, wound up with a huge gang of friends there as well. Um, So I I think so. Yeah, I think mostly I I, I fit in, although I have to say fitting in is is vastly overrated. because you have to sort of cut off bits of yourself in order to fit in. And, and that's almost never a good idea. But I always had a group of friends, I would say. That's nice. You have, you know, I think the, you know, as a young person, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how badly I botched conversations yeah. and, you know, just didn't read people. I mean, just clue less. Were you always just like, I mean, having this interest in psychology, were you always just good at it? No, I don't think so. I don't think I was a natural at all. Um, it, I was very much sort of the bookish kid who was reading books most of the time. And, and so really, I, only, I, I would only have come out uh, sort of socially that way uh, once I was around a bunch of other nerdy book, bookish kids. You know, at that point, okay, I know how to deal with these people. Um, but uh, no, I wouldn't describe myself as a, as a natural extrovert in that way. So then how, you do the grad work and I, you know, I don't know the path of psychologists. So how did you think about, you know, shaping your career? Well, uh, I started out thinking uh, anxiety would be uh, where I would start. Uh, and so at Western, you do your, your master's degree and then your PhD, typically in the same place uh, with the same supervisor. And I proposed a master's thesis pro- project that a couple of months after it had been approved, I realized this is impossible. Why did these idiots approve this? I, w- I am a moron because this, this is bigger than a PhD project. I'm never going to be able to do this. And so I thought, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm done. Uh, and so I, I remember writing a letter to my supervisor apologizing that I had proposed this idiotic project and so on, and, you know, <laughs> begging forgiveness. And we retooled and I wound up uh, working on stress research instead. I wasn't thrown out of the program, which I sort of expected. Did uh, stress research for, the, for that degree and the following one and uh, graduated uh, following a year-long um, internship program in Mississauga, uh, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto. Um, and that was a very interesting time 
it was the late 1980s. And as a gay man, 1980s, not the greatest time for most people, right? Not thrilling. Uh, you know, you wind up watching a lot of your friends die and so on. And, and so that was, a, that was a pretty difficult year. And I went into, as I describe in the intro to one of my books, uh, something pretty darn close to a depressive episode, but I managed to get through. And then afterwards thought, you know, maybe depression isn't really my thing. I don't, I don't really want to be treating too much depression. Uh, so I, I became sort of an anxiety disorder guy. Um, and then came the time to return home to Vancouver. Uh, and I did the rounds. And, and I did something that I, I would recommend to any psychologist. I don't know if this applies to anybody else. But jobs are, are not posted often until they already know who they want to hire. And so you, I, I thought, oh, I'm going to go out to Vancouver and I'm going to go make the rounds of all the major psychology departments, take everybody out to coffee and find out what's up. And, and I did that. I wound up getting several job offers, some of them not the greatest, but one of them was to head up a program for people who'd been just hospitalized and then discharged from care for major depressive disorder. And so I went from no depression for me, thank you, a little too close to home, to I'm going to be dealing only with very severe depression post-hospitalization. Most of these people will have attempted suicide. Uh, and I remember, well, this will be great because I'll be in Vancouver and that'll make it easy for me to look for a different job because I don't want this one. And I wind up staying there for a long while and, and doing a lot of work on, um, on depression. It turned out, turned out I could do. Who knew? Randy, so, so, talk to folks a bit about depression. You know, we all suffer it from some point, clinical, not, you know, just to, you know, I, and I have some um, friends, family members who have suffered for it and, you know, don't want to make it worse, you know, don't want to be part of the problem and, and would appreciate just perhaps a little overview on it. Well, I mean, Clinical depression is a very particular thing. There are nine uh, core symptoms. I won't go over them all, but, um, you know, including difficulties with sleep, difficulties with eating, uh, difficulties with energy, cognitive changes, both in terms of content, feeling guilty or inadequate in many ways, uh, but also in the, in the sort of functioning cognitively, uh, often memory problems, concentration problems, decision-making problems, and so on. Sometimes um, uh, self-destructive thoughts or impulses. And low mood, which is kind of predictable, everybody knows about that one, but also anhedonia, which a lot of people think is the same thing, but it's totally different, actually. Anhedonia is not the low mood. It's the inability of things that normally would raise your mood to raise them. So normally, I don't know what you like, snowshoeing, whatever, uh, you go snowshoeing, does nothing for you, right? It just has no impact. You might as well be doing nothing. Uh, so that's, that's the anhedonia. You lose not only the ability to enjoy things, but also the interest in possibly doing them tomorrow. Um, and the, one of the effects of these symptoms as they begin coming about is uh, it begins to seem a little pointless to engage in stuff if you're not going to get any emotional payoffs. So you don't. You don't do them. Um, 
the effect of this is you begin adopting a lifestyle and a way of being that naturally intensifies the depression. So it tends to be a bit of a spiral, like a whirlpool that sucks you in. Because you don't get any joy out of going out, you stop going out. Uh, one of the things, some people find that they're a little bit light sensitive, so they close the curtains. They're basically sitting alone at home in the dark. I have a thing that I do uh, when I'm assessing somebody with clinical depression. Um, uh, at the end of the assessment, I'll say, well, you know, thank you. You've been so patient. I've been asking you question after question after question. Uh, I got one more question for you. Uh, imagine that we were to kidnap the next 10 people who walk in front of this building. This is the weirdest question yet. And we give them your life. We make them do everything you do. So your sleep cycle, your diet, uh, your amount of social contact, your family, <laughs> your job, 24 hours a day, whatever you do, we'll make them do. And we'll just leave them there for a month. At the end of the month, we'll come back and we'll say, how you doing? So what do you think, client? Uh, how, would, how, would, uh, how would our kidnap people be? And virtually all of my clients say the same thing. They say, oh, I think they'd be depressed. If you're a clinician, you're always playing a kind of mental chess. And that really sets up a, an interesting position for the clinician, because at that point I can say, oh, so you think you're normal, which is true. The majority of people are actually reacting fairly normally to the circumstances that they're in. Um, I've said to many clinicians, the more you know your client, the harder it is to diagnose them, because the more you know what's going on in their life, the less weird it seems what they're going through. So I think with many people, when they undergo a depression, it's useful for them to look at their life and say, okay, let's imagine putting other people into this, living exactly the way I'm living. I know I think I'm living this way because I'm so miserable, but what if somebody else was placed in that life? How would they be? Generally speaking, people are realizing, yeah, they wouldn't be doing so great. So then the next step in helping people help themselves is what? Distrust your instincts. I mean, it's a huge thing in pop psychology, but trust your instincts. Well, your instincts during depression are saying, you are the biggest piece of crap in the world. You are worthless. Your life is not worth living. Uh, and this is never going to change. And you feel that in your bones to the point that it feels like you know that it's true. Uh, and it's, so it, it feels absolutely natural to do, be doing all of these things. I have no energy. Why would I exercise? I need to protect the amount of energy that I have. The idea of getting on an exercise bicycle and just spending it for no reason. That's ridiculous. I shouldn't be doing that. Getting better from depression almost always means violating your instincts and doing almost the exact opposite of what feels right. So I have no energy, so I'm going to go outside and go for a walk. I'm light sensitive, so I'm going to take off my sunglasses and open the curtains. I have no appetite, so I'm going to eat. Um, you really have to work against that. And that's one of the reasons why it can often take so much support from a clinician uh, to help you to do it, because it just feels stupid uh, often. 
what you're doing in order to get out of depression. But that's really what you have to do is begin living a life almost as though you weren't depressed and you will feel like you're faking it. And there's a reason for that. You are uh, for a period of time. And then gradually, often it begins to sink in and you begin to feel in a way that reflects the life that you're in. It, not always. There's more to it than that, of course, but, yeah. but that's, that's a big part of uh, what cognitive behavior therapy is about. That is so fascinating. So Randy, how do you, um, you know, keep yourself from getting, you know, someone's super sad or they're having a really rough time and not like over empathizing so that you, mm. you know, become sad. <laughs> That, that can be a real challenge uh, for clinicians generally and for me. Um, I think one of the answers to that question is experience. And that is you see that, in fact, uh, these things are temporary and these things do change. Uh, and the client is absolutely convinced that that's not true, but, but you've seen it. You've seen it. And you know that these things shift and change over time. Uh, and so... You, you don't get stuck there to same, quite the same extent that the client does. And the second thing you do is you see a diversity of people. Um, I, I think that it's a bad idea for most clinicians to have one specialty where that's all you see, especially if it's something that you've had a bit of a proneness to yourself. Because uh, indeed, you know, if, if you've got any predisposition to depression whatsoever and all you see is depression all day, uh, that's probably not optimal for your own mental health. And the third thing you have to do is you have to have a life. Um, I see clinicians who work so hard and such long hours that they burn themselves out or they have to leave the field um, because they're really not taking care of themselves and they're not living any of the advice that they're giving their clients. Um, so you have to have a life of your own uh, that's separate from your clinical life. And if I was to give a fourth thing, it would be to have something in your life where like a hobby or an activity or pastime of some kind where it's obvious that you made the difference. Because as a clinician, what you're always trying to do is you're trying to reflect to the client get the client's strength out of them and have them make the change. I'm often telling clients, who's the therapist in this room? Seems like an easy quiz question. They always get it wrong. It's them. They're the ones that are going to be doing all the work. All I do is sit in a chair and say, aha, and, and occasionally provide a bit of guidance. <laughs> they're the ones that do the work. So they're the therapist. And we're really training them to be the therapist after the therapy is over. So it's very possible that you begin thinking, gosh, you know, I think I did good work with that person, but who knows, you know, maybe they would have got better anyway. And it's true. They might have. Uh, depression is a waxing and waning problem. It goes away on its own generally. Um, at least an episode does. Often will recur, but an episode will tend to go away on its own. All we're trying to do is speed it up, show it the door a little faster. Um, and, and so it's, it's possible to devalue your own efforts. And it's very helpful if you have something that you can do where it clearly would not have happened if it was not for you. Uh, something physical, uh, ideally. This is one of the reasons for uh, my husband and I to own this farm. Uh, it's like, if 
that fence wasn't going to build itself, right? Nobody else was here. The fence is now built. So mm-hmm. I guess somebody did it. Uh, and there's not going to be any, you know, mental doubts or arguments about it. So those are some things that you do to keep your balance. Have a life, do something where it's clearly your product. Um, know what's uh, happening uh, sort of longer term. Know that these things do do change and get better. It's not a hopeless uh, situation and see more than one thing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. How um, do you, do you compartmentalize work with your husband? Is he in a similar space? You ever talk about it? Or you're like, you're, you leave the, you know, you leave the, the client setting and you're off to your personal life. Oh, we, we, yeah, we talk about work, but um, you know, with the clinical work, you don't, you, you don't really share any of that. Um but, uh, you know, struggles with the clinic and so on. One of the, eventually I left the UBC hospital and started this private clinic. Uh, and we're now 18 psychologists and there's all kinds of problems associated with that down to, you know, the heat didn't come on because, it, you know, it's starting winter, let's say, and the building hasn't turned the heat on. Well, who's going to go after the, the landlord? I guess that's me. Uh, so you wind up doing all kinds of stuff like that. And so we whine and complain about that kind of thing at home. Um, my husband was involved. He was one of the founders uh, and co-owners of a heavy equipment manufacturing company. Uh, so totally different field. Uh, and uh, we've been involved. So we t- you know, talk about issues there, but mostly not. Mostly it's, it's you know, other things. We have another life not just chatting about work all the time. That's so great. Well, how did you meet? Uh, we were set up, you know, in the early days before, um, before the internet, there was something in Vancouver that was this bulletin board system where your, your computer actually dialed in. You filled out this little questionnaire and everybody else filled out this little questionnaire and then it suggested people that you might want to chat with or whatever. Um, and, um, I remember going out for dinner with uh, a, a gentleman and yeah, we were both pretty clear. Yeah. Okay. That's miss uh, on that one. Um, but later he, he said, Oh, there was this other guy that I, uh, I met the two of you might, might get along. And I thought, Oh yeah, right. Uh, it met him and we've been together ever since. Uh, and that was uh, 27 years ago now. Ugh. I love it. Oh, 28 years, 28 years. I love it. I love it. I love it. So the, you went into the um, private practice from a career standpoint. So you're, you know, you've got the the content of the work, but you're running a business too, Randy. Yep. So did you just like make that up along the way? How did you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> made it up. Well, I made it up, learned through errors. Uh, essentially. I wound up writing a book called private practice made simple. And in, in the beginning of that book, I said, look, I've made every mistake possible, and that's what makes this a good book. So you don't have to make them too. Um, so I learned by trial and error. The really, it's a strange thing in psychology. Apparently, the same is true in dentistry and medicine. They don't teach you how to run a business, uh, and so you have to kind of figure it out as you go along. I felt working in the hospital setting. And there's not to put anybody down who's there, but I kind of felt like I was still a child who hadn't left mom's home. 
you know, because they handled the finances and they handled the income and they handled the budgets and they handled everything. And I just had to do my little thing uh, as like making your bed, you know, that's all you have to do. Um, and I kind of felt like I need a different kind of adulthood than this. And also I didn't want to sit on committees anymore because it turns out I'm terrible at committees. Um, and so I started this thing up and then gradually figured out how to, how to make it run. But this has no, there's no culture of how to run a practice in, in psychology. And so it's, it's, it's a challenge to do. I've been running workshops on it ever since <laughs> on, on the subject. And I do coaching for people who are starting up their own practice sometimes. That's fantastic. Do you have kind of one hilarious <laughs> screw up you can share with us? Oh gosh, I don't, I can't think of any, you put me on the spot. I can't think of anything, of course, but I think I've screwed up everything. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. I'll get back to you on that. No uh, I mean, most of them are relatively uninteresting things like how do you, how do you keep track of uh, income? Uh, and do you just use Excel or what? That kind of thing. Um, one problem that I noticed that a lot of psychologists have is that they, they earn a certain hourly income in a hospital setting. And then they look at what a psychologist charges per hour in a clinical setting. And they think, oh, my God, I'm going to be rich uh, because it's so much more. And I, I, I'm constantly pointing out and had to learn this myself. These are two completely different numbers. For one thing, the funds that you're charging your clients uh, per hour, you're not going to see 40 hours of clients a week. You're just not, right? Or if you are, you ain't going to be doing that for long because you're going to burn out. So you only get paid for a small proportion of the hours that you're actually working. And that money doesn't go home with you. That money pays for the rent. That money pays for pads and pens and computers and all of this stuff. You only get a small proportion of that. So you can't compare those numbers one to one, uh, which probably sounds to anybody listening who's in business 100% obvious, but it's not necessarily obvious to somebody who's just sat in a room learning psychology all these years. That's great. Thank you. You have just, it's really impressive how you've translated, you know, your knowledge into these books. And so, you know, you wrote your first book and what was that like? And then you've continued. So maybe take us through your career through the, the books and what the impetus for, for each of them. Sure. Well, that original program at UBC hospital is post-hospitalization program was a group therapy thing and it had a manual for clients and that needed to be revised. And so I did all of that. And then we needed to, part of the function of the grant that we had was you're supposed to run it at the hospital. And if it turned out to work, uh, take it to one of the community mental health centers, British Columbia, Canada, generally every town larger than 5,000 people has its own um, free community mental health center. Um, and so all these things are operating, but they don't have necessarily empirically supported research behind them. Um, and so the deal was put it out there to three other centers. So I had to come up with a clinician's guide. How do you run this darn thing? And then go out and do workshops. And so I did a lot of that. Then we realized that a lot of the people coming through a depression program, not so good with assertiveness skills. 
One of the theories about um, uh, depression is called the learned helplessness theory promoted by Martin Seligman, former president of the American Psychological Association. And, and this is whatever it is that I do, even if I'm in a pr quite privileged life, whatever it is that I do has no real outcome or no real influence on what happens. And if, uh, if you can't be assertive, if you can't set boundaries and then maintain them, learned helplessness is not a cognitive distortion. It's real. You don't have control over your own life. You're not in charge of your life. Everybody else on the planet is. Because if they say, will you do this? You have to say, okay, I guess I will. So a lot of people with depression have had significant difficulties setting and maintaining adequate personal boundaries. So long story short, we made up a, uh, an eight session group therapy program for graduates of our depression thing on how to be more assertive. And so that entailed coming up with about a hundred and some odd page manual for clients that they could work through in the course of the program. So then I go off to APA uh, the convention, and it was in Boston that year, I remember. And there's a talk on self-help publishing. And I remember, oh, I wanted to write books, right? If I wasn't a psychologist, I wanted to write books. I'll go to this thing. So I go to this thing and they talk about, okay, if you're going to write a self-help book, here's what you do, blah, blah, blah. And there's a guy at the front, tall guy at the front, who stands up at the end, turns out he's the co-owner of a publishing company. And he says, yeah, and he does a few little reflections on what, what the panel has said. And then he says, if anybody has a book manuscript, please see me because we're interested. And the thing is, if you've done an assertiveness training manual, you can't then claim to be too shy to go up to somebody, right? It's, it just looks bad. So I thought, oh, damn, I, I'm, I'm going to actually have to go up and do the little show and tell thing. Here's my little manual. Would you be interested? Feeling like an idiot. So I do this. And he, he flips through it and he says, yeah, this is pretty much exactly what we publish. Um, can you meet with me at office hours later? Within two days, I had a book contract. And that became the Assertiveness Workbook, which this fall is coming out in its second edition. Uh, and it's been a constant seller ever since. And then having a relationship with that publisher, I wound up doing other books as well, including the most recent ones. Um, which are the How to Be Miserable books, which are actually based on an exercise I did in those very first groups back at UBC Hospital. How to Be Miserable. Say more about How to Be Miserable. Well, I mean, these, these people in these group programs, as I say, they were very serious depressions, right? And so uh, that they'd experienced, and most of them have been in hospital a couple of times, been through all kinds of therapy and meds and so on. And things hadn't worked very well. And I figured if I go in there and start saying, oh, cognitive behavior therapy is the most wonderful thing ever. It's going to fix you right up. I was just going to get totally shot down. That, that was just not going to fly. So I thought, how can I do something that maybe will catch them a little off guard? And so what I did was an, an exercise. I thought I'll, I'll experiment with this once, see how it happens. Um, I said, let's imagine that next Thursday, uh, you could win $10 million if you could make yourself more depressed. Uh, I know you don't want to do that, but what if you did? What if you could make 10 million bucks? Uh, and, and how would you go about doing that? And then I would work my way around the room trying to get one thing from everybody. And something strange happened in that room. People began talking over each other. 
And we begin to get a lot of crosstalk, which in group therapy is traditionally a bad thing. But in this group, with this group of you know, low energy people, it was actually a very good thing. And they started laughing and, and, and outdoing each other with these crazy ideas, listen to country music, hurting songs. A surprising number of people said, call my mother. Um, <laughs> like all kinds of different things that people would come up with. And, and I would write every single one of these on the board and then stop them and say, okay, let's imagine you wake up and you're already depressed. What do you feel like doing? And then they would say, oh, um, not eat. And I would circle not eating, which was already on the board. Oh, or binge eat. Oh, binge eating's on the board too. I circle that. Um, put, like stay in bed. Oh, stay in bed's on the board. I circle that. And I would wind up circling many of the things that they had just identified as strategies to feel worse. And I pointed out that nobody wants to be depressed. Nobody is deliberately bringing about depression. But depression changes our motivational structure, and it makes us want to do precisely what will make the depression worse. All your life, with a more general audience, I will say, all your life, you've, you've tried to be happier. And most of us are just not that satisfied with how happy we've become. But there's been a box in the corner of your life, sitting there the entire time. You've never even looked at it. Look at the box. The reason you haven't looked at it, it's got a label on it. It says how to be miserable. And you think, oh, I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to look. Look at it. What if it was your mission to feel worse, to have a worse life than you do, rather than a better life than you do? Take some time, 20 minutes. You've wasted 20 minutes in your life. For goodness sake, probably most of us waste 20 minutes at least every day. Well, half of us are addicted to Wordle, for goodness sake. <laughs> so waste 20 minutes. Ask yourself what you would do if, if you really wanted to feel miserable. And what you will often discover is that you're already doing a lot of those things. And maybe in order to feel better, you don't have to start doing anything or revolutionize your life. You just need to stop doing some of the stuff you're already at. And so that's where, where, where that comes from. Um, obviously, there's more to it than that. There are things, the most appalling things happen to you. If you specialize in depression, you think you know how life can go badly. Uh, you hear over the course of decades, the most unbelievably appalling things can happen to people, things that you would never imagine. And so there's all of these things that are absolutely out of our control, but there are also things that are at least theoretically in our control. We can exercise. We can get some bright light during, into our eyes during the hours of light. Uh, we can work with our diet to at least some extent. We can make social life a bigger priority than television. There are things that are within our control. And luckily, those things are in most people's lives sufficient to outbalance the uncontrollable things, the losses, the terrible childhood, the, uh, the traumas that we've undergone. You know, we can also change how we deal with the terrible things that have happened to us. Uh, we may not be able to have a time machine and go back and erase awful events, but we can change how we react to things and we can change how we 
uh, live our lives in the present. And that's where that's where those books came from. Wow. Randy, let's segue, because you've talked about this failure to launch phenomena, young people work with adolescents, and I would love to dive deep on that. Yeah, this has been, uh, over the years, I saw, well, naturally enough, I saw a lot of young young adults at the cusp of adulthood, many of them experiencing difficulty sort of seizing their adult independence, if you like. Um, and then gradually, I wound up getting more and more and more of, uh, of these young people. It sort of became something, I don't know, people thought, oh, Patterson will deal with this. Um, and so it became a bit of a subspecialty with me, I suppose. Um, and it's this the failure to launch field, the, the young adults stereotypically living in mom's basement and not really getting out. Uh, much. Not the ones who are sort of taking advantage of free rent and then working and then partying all the time. That's another thing. These are the ones who really have almost no social network, um, typically quite socially anxious, stuck at home, um, sometimes gaming 10 hours a day, uh, that kind of thing, and just not moving forward with their lives. And so I deal with a great deal with that, that population. And with their parents. And sometimes I see the parents, sometimes I see the young person, uh, sometimes I see both. So say yeah. more about what's happening on either side, because I, I just can imagine listeners nodding their head like, you know, maybe it's our family, but maybe it's ones that we're seeing. So I just think- Oh, no. <laughs> no, this is a mammoth problem. It's most widely known in Japan, where it's typically called hikikomori. Uh, and indeed, many of the young adults who are sort of stuck at home internationally have started referring to themselves as hikikomori. This is becoming sort of their term for it. Uh, they don't call themselves failure to launch. Uh, in Britain, the term is neat, not in education, employment, or training. Bit of an acronym. Um, and uh, a variety of factors seem present in most cases. Very few seem to be brought on by just one thing. But often it's, it's somewhat higher social anxiety, um, modeling often by family, but not always, the idea that avoidance is the way to solve a problem. And so avoid, 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 you wind up in a basement somewhere. Um, very unhealthy lifestyle, often a degree of internet. Uh, I hate to use the word addiction, but there we are. Uh, or gaming. Uh, not the gaming is necessarily a terrible thing, but 10 hours a day uh, is kind of probably pre- preventing you from doing anything else. Um, many people point to high housing prices, uh, although the problem seems to be roughly equally prevalent in areas with unreasonable housing prices and, and other areas. Uh, so that doesn't seem to be the big issue. Um, and uh, increasingly, I think, a kind of fragility that we are inadvertently building into young people. Uh, An example of that is the avoidance of failure experiences. A lot of schools are thinking of failure as being a bad thing or traumatizing. And so they really try to avoid any kind of failure experiences in, in, in their young people and their students which is a really great thing if they're preparing them for a planet on which failure does not occur. But I'm not sure what planet that would be. 
I mean, adulthood is mostly about failure. I mean, it, that's harsh reality. I've got probably 15 book ideas. Most of them are failures. Uh, the only reason I've managed to do anything is, 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 is by failing at stuff. Um, you know, you apply for jobs. Most of those applications don't work out. You go dating uh, people and most of the ones you date, you turn out you don't want to date anymore or, or you do, but they don't want to date you. So failure is a normal part of human life, but we seem to be inadvertently training young people in the idea that failure is a terrible thing to be avoided. There are some high schools, for example, where they'll stop the softball game before it finishes so that nobody really knows who would have won. And that way you don't create a team of losers. Uh, this is a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Failure exposure is one of the best things you can do. Uh, and another thing that we do is we're constantly telling young people that they need to pursue their passion. I got news for you. Most young people have no clue what their passion is because they have not constructed it yet. We, we create this idea that passion is like some Easter egg out there hidden in the grass that you are going to stumble over one day. Or if you sit on mom's couch long enough, FedEx is going to pop by, press the button and deliver it. That's, this is actually not how passion develops. Um, and so an inordinate number of young people are feeling absolutely stuck because they don't know what their passion is. And it's often a bit of a surprise in therapy when I say, well, that means you don't have one. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, you, you don't have it. If you had a passion, you'd know what it is and, and you don't know what it is. So you don't have one. Uh, but you have a life and so you need to be doing that anyway. Most, most young people don't have a passion and, and uh, we're implying otherwise. And I think that's paralyzing for a, young, a lot of young people. Even people who later, later in life, possibly you, Molly, uh, uh, possibly others uh, who, who feel like I'm living out my passion. That was not your passion when you started. You had no clue about this, right? Uh, it's, Passion is something that we develop through involvement and engagement with something. It's not something that comes fully formed. So that's part of what happens on the young people's side, I think. That's a bit of a long, involved answer, I suppose. Oh, I so, so, so appreciate it. I want to bottle all this up. <laughs> For the parental units or adoring aunts, uh, things like that, thoughts mm. on, you know, you know, we're not trying to generalize folks or, you know, over-solution, mm. but just maybe some things that you see commonly, Randy, that people might perhaps become aware that they're doing that yeah. maybe aren't so helpful? Yeah. I mean, if, if we've got a young person in this situation, it's easy to point to them and say, well, there's the problem. Uh, but if somebody is getting more support than as a, you know, functioning adult, they, they actually need, then somebody else has to be providing it. And often what's happening is that families feel inadequate for the parenting that they've done and are making up for it by caring for their young adults and um, inadvertently taking away all of the motivation for that young adult to progress. They don't realize that that's what's happening, but it is. I remember a, a, a man saying, why is my son uh, sitting on the internet constantly in his room uh, demanding that his family bring meals to him. And, and when we do, we bring up the trays, 
then he insults the food. Like, why does he do this? And, uh, and I remember thinking, I don't know how else to say this. Well, I'm just going to say it because he can. Uh, because actually what I said in that instance, uh, which turned out not to be the right thing, uh, was because he has no parents, he only has servants, which I thought was clever and turned out not to be. Um, <laughs> The reason that we do most things in adulthood is not because we're passionate and not because we have intrinsic motivation, but because we have adaptive motivation. In other words, we're hungry, so we need to go find food. We don't have any money, so we need to go get a job, even if it's a kind of crappy job that we don't really, you know, it doesn't really interest us us that much, at least at the beginning. Uh, Most of us, if we look back, will identify, no, our first jobs were not our great passion. Um, we do these things, we move outward and move into adulthood because childhood is no longer available. Mommy is not going to make us mac and cheese every night. Um, and if she does, then, then we're thrown back on our intrinsic motivation, on our own drive into independence. And the vast majority of people don't have a strong enough one. So what I see in a lot of parents is, is that they're trying to be nice and be supportive, but they're supporting their young adults' dependence and not their independence. I wound up doing a, I do, I've done so many courses for professionals that I eventually decided to do some for the public. And so I actually came up with one called the Parent Trap for parents in this situation to really evaluate what's going on, what are the roles in the family, and how do, I, how do I shift that remaining supportive, maybe even amping up the support, but making it support for the right thing. Oh, I so try to do that in therapy, but I try to do that in courses too. It's so amazing. Randy, for folks listening, would you just go through some of the resources that perhaps they could tap into if they'd like to learn a little bit more? Sure. All of my courses are at a, um, a site called Psychology Salon, all one word, dot teachable.com. And I've been very good about that. There's courses for professionals, courses for the public, and they're sort of all mixed in there together, but it's obvious which are for which. The one for parents that I was just talking about is called The Parent Trap. Um, And uh, so that's where a lot of courses are. I also have a YouTube channel. uh, And if you go to YouTube and just type in in the search engine, Psychology Salon, you'll find it. A new video goes up every two weeks um, based on my stuff. My books, How to Be Miserable, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s, and the Assertiveness Workbook in particular uh, are available from Amazon. And my personal website is randypatterson.com. And Patterson, the pain of my life, well, there have been worse pains in my life, but uh, is that Patterson is with one T. Everybody misspells the name, so nobody can find me anywhere. But it is Randy Patterson with one T.com. So that's where to find a lot of my stuff. Perfect. I'll include the links as well uh, when we post. Uh, let's uh, go to a little bit of wrap here. Randy, most proud moment of your career thus far? I've been trying to think about that. And, and, and what would it be? I think it has been uh, um, 
the work that I've done to try to get psychology out of the consulting room and out there into the public sphere through um, workshops for professionals, through workshops for the general public, through, I suppose, the YouTube thing, um, and through the courses for the public and the books is, is trying to make psychology more accessible to a broader range of people. Psychotherapy is this model that we've had for 130 years and has barely changed. Uh, the content has changed, but the format, the, you know, the 50 minute hour, we're stuck with this for some reason. And uh, it's never gonna serve everybody. We are never gonna have enough therapists for everybody. So we gotta have some way of getting it out there more broadly. And I, I think I've tried to, to pursue some of that. I suppose that's what I would be most proud of in my career, happiest about. That's fantastic. Randy, what was it like for you to share your journey with us today? Well, uh, good. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nice overview. There's lots of trials and tribulations along the way, some of which I probably wouldn't say even if you asked. Uh, but uh, there's, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of do a survey of, uh, of your career. It's, um, um, now that I'm sort of looking back on at least the majority of it, um, it's interesting to think about. Nice. Randy, I am grateful for you. I really thank you for being a big part of the solution. Um, it's been informing to learn about you, your work, um, and it's really inspiring to uh, hear the impact you've had on people and their families and communities. So, you know, I'm grateful for your compassion and uh, all I've, I've learned. And I think what you're doing is really helping all people feel safe seen and heard and, and hopefully their true and best self. So thank you so much for joining me. And anything I can do to be helpful to you, my friend, you let me know. I will, I suppose. And I th thank you very much. Uh, and, and, and thank you for this. This has yeah. been an interesting opportunity. I appreciate yeah. it. We'll follow up again for sure. You take good care. You too. So as uh, my thought for the week in the spirit of what Randy shared Failure is a normal part of life. Failure exposure is one of the best things we can do. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Randy's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.